0: All right. Hello everyone. Oh, Welcome to World Building for Lazy Dungeon Masters. How many of you are world builders yourself? Oh. Wow. How many of you are your Lazy Dungeon Masters? Yeah! We'll get more than that by the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming out. We're going to give you some uh, fantastic tips on uh, how to create your own worlds. Uh, we have a focus towards Dungeons and Dragons, I think, just by the nature of uh, the panel and the panelists, but uh, a lot of this advice will be uh, applied to whatever sort of world you're making, particularly for tabletop world champions. Um, before we go any farther, let's introduce the panel. First of all, I'm your gracious host, James Haik. I'm the lead writer for D&D Beyond, uh, and I've worked for Wizards of the Coast on Waterdeep Dragon Heights and uh, Baldur's Gate: Descent into Avernus. Uh, but this panel isn't about me. I prep far too much for my games <laughs> to be on this panel. Let's talk about everyone else. Yeah, let's start with you.
1: Hi, I'm Mackenzie D'Armas, Mackenzie Lane DA on Twitter. I am an independent tabletop role-playing games online content creator. So you may know me as a frequent guest on the Scraticus Academy Twitch channel, uh, the co-host and current DM for the one-on-one a D&D Duet campaign podcast, and most recently, one of the writers for Matt Colville's tentatively named Player's Guide to Capital.
0: Cool.
2: Hi, my name is Morgan Robbins. I am a I work on D and D lore research at Wizards of the Coast, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Morgan i uh,
3: I'm Mike Shea. I write for SlyFlourish.com, and I wrote the book The Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. <laughs>
4: Hi hey all I'm Renee Rhodes. Uh, I am the DM for Fate and the Fable Maiden's podcast, which is a family-friendly and uh, podcast, actual play, we have a lot of fun, and I also appear pretty regularly on Scraticus Academy streams, uh, as well as some other intermittent streams on other channels. But uh, in my day job, uh, I also get to game all the time. I am the lead writer for Weave by Monocle Society, which we are not here to talk about today, but is a pretty good game if you're a lazy dungeon master. So uh, just if that's interesting to you, let me know.
0: So let's get started by uh, establishing a few things. We're talking about lazy dungeon mastering. We don't say that pejoratively. We say that because uh, a good lazy dungeon master often comes from someone who doesn't have the time to put in a boatload of prep, or for someone who feels that putting in a lot of prep actually might be a hindrance to the game that they're running, and I'll let these fine people talk about that a little bit more. When it comes to world building, we're talking about creating a secondary world, a setting that uh, any sort of fantasy role playing story can take place in. And when it comes to uh, lazy world building, uh, we find that it often helps to start with the small things first. Uh, As a dungeon master, I am often the opposite. I start with big things, cosmos, gods, nations, political conflicts. but. Uh, that may not be the right way to start. Um, So let's just start about uh, starting small. Uh, Don't worry about what's on, on there. Talk about whatever you like. These are just a couple of notes for everyone out there.
2: Well, instinctively come up with things and find threads and you can expand between sessions. So you just need to fill that time for that first session and the threads will go
1: and you just have to pick one. One of my favorite things to do for campaigns is I really like collaborative world building and so uh, very recently for one of the campaigns I just ran I basically was like I let my other players sort of they they were they had created these wonderful characters and they were interacting with each other and making like inner character relationships and as they were sort of exploring those relationships just sort of together and like text uh, like texting back and forth in like a group chat like it was like oh so there is a um, resident advisor okay that's a character now because that has that character now has a connection to you and I'll just take that and flesh them out a little bit maybe add like a couple secrets here and there for you to discover later Um, and we'll pop them into the world and like oh your character is a serial dater cool we're gonna encounter one of your (laughs) ex-girlfriends woo and then like expanding on that and being like okay we're gonna start out small and then as you like as much it's like you don't people don't care about like the big cosmos and stuff they'll care about it if it affects something very close to them so it's like Maybe like, yeah, you meet their ex-girlfriend, but also their ex-girlfriend is God-touched, and now that's coming into play, and now they care a little bit about the bigger world, but it's because you started out small, and you started out with something that is very close to that player's heart, and then from there, they start following those threads, and they start that spiral outward to look at the bigger picture, but starting out small and starting out with those characters and those locations that mean the most to your players will get their interest into that and sort of hook them into your world, and you can sort of take them step by step from there.
0: That raises a really good point because we're talking about uh, sort of character first world building here. That's sort of the heart of the spiral. And if you've got a character who's a cleric or a paladin or someone who's intricately uh, connected to a god or some major source of power, then you do have to kind of look out to the bigger picture uh, just to start the campaign or uh, rely on them to create it for you.
2: One of my favorite things is uh, when I'm starting a session with characters and I see the characters that they brought to the table and is finding the common thread between them. And sometimes it's extremely easy and sometimes it's a little bit more difficult. Um, I think the easiest time I had, going back to Waterdeep Dragon Heist, was everyone built the background noble. And I was like, I know exactly what kind of game we're running. Get ready for all of the politics ever.
4: Oh. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I'm gonna be real honest. I'm feeling like I might be a little too lazy to be on this panel.
0: (laughs) I don't think that's possible. Uh,
4: So, I've never started small in my life. (laughs) Because that presumes that I start before the game. (laughs) 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 So, one time I had a dream about gods and uh, it was pretty epic I said, that's a campaign I know there are like 30 gods, I know the names of like three Um, and so they showed up in the game, but obviously it's taking taking time and I'm going to refer a lot to my podcast throughout this process that's the the longest running campaign that I have ever run and it's been going for almost two years now Um, and I'm super excited about it but a lot of other uh, games that I've done have been one shots, which of course have a very different scope of world building And so the way I see it is like, yes, I don't, I start with a big picture, whoop, plosives. Um, But it's so zoomed out that you don't see any of the details. Um, And then I just start zooming in really, really fast. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that's the start of the game. Wherever that point is, wherever that zoom lands, is just how the game begins. Uh, And I guess that is a small point, but it it is usually character-informed. It's it's gathering exactly what they're doing, and of course I feel so terrible that I can't provide them a lot more information about the world when they are creating their characters, but I just I struggle with that. I might can give them like a word or two. Um, But I, I have some people who've created incredible characters, and once they have that that thread that I can start kind of weaving together, I can zoom in, pin it to the board, and start connecting that thread to other places and creating that bigger picture.
0: One, thing, one of the things we've been talking about a lot right now are all of these ideas are focused on limiting the scope of what you do as a, as a game creator, so I, I want to shift the focus, the lens just a little bit, and talk about what you can do—not to limit the scope of what you do, but to avoid having to do anything at all. <laughs> what are things you can do to you know beg, borrow, cheat, and steal your way into having a great game without having to you know write a single word on paper? Uh, I mean, you wrote a whole book on it, so let's start with
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, Yeah, but I mean, one of the things that I think a lot about and I've thought about when I'm, when I'm looking at campaign worlds is the amount of energy that has gone into existing campaign worlds. Mm. And it's like, you may have a really great idea, right? And you, your campaign world, and you, you're like, I drew a map, right? I've got a really cool coastal line. And you're like, there's probably like 10, I don't know, could there be a billion words written about the Forgotten Realms? You know, there could be, right? You can go out to the Kobo Press booth and pick up the Midgard book. I bet you you can't make that, right? Like that's like a fifty thousand dollar book to make, mm-hmm. and you get it for like forty bucks, right? Or whatever they sell for now. That's, you know, ask them to get forty bucks. You can probably get down forty bucks. So, you know, like there, there's such value in looking at published campaign settings. And the flip side is like that's also paralyzing, right? Like this is this huge world, and I have got to read seven hundred pages about Midgard. Like I'll just make my own. You know, I'll just figure out where the game's going to start and go. Um, but I, but I think there's, yeah, in this steel department, there's a lot to steal. And the, on the last panel, James Intercastle was talking about game prep. And he said that like, his, a lot of his prep is reading. You know? And I think that that's some of the most value you can get in your prep is picking up stuff that has gone through multiple playtesters, multiple editors, multiple writers. You know, has tons of art and all of that stuff. And you get it for dirt cheap compared to how much it took to make it. Right? And then work with that. So I'm a big I'm a big proponent of using other people's published worlds because I can't I can't do that. You're gonna move the
0: science along, I think we're moving into next slide (laughs) here
1: I mean yeah, I, I totally steal so much stuff. Um I mean I enjoy like as a as a creator, I enjoy looking at like gods and pantheons and I enjoy looking at like cosmology and how that affects like the world beneath it. Um, but like all of my gods and pantheons, I've totally stolen them. Like I just, for the one, recently I just reskinned a bunch of Forgotten Realms gods and just changed a couple of things and I was like, yep, that's good. And then, for my most recent campaign, I just took like the Norse pantheon, the Greek pantheon, uh, the Egyptian pantheon, I I went very Percy Jackson and just was like, yeah, they already exist. Everyone kind of has preconceptions of them, we'll just pop them in, it's fine. Um, but I think there's something to be said about stealing, but also stealing consciously. Like, if you love something, you are going to be tempted to borrow from it and that's just how loving something works. You love it, you want to emulate it. But when you look at things that you like, be sure to also like look at them consciously, be able to figure out what you like, but also be f- able to figure out what you don't like. And also look at the history from that and look at where you're stealing your stories from um, speaking as someone who comes who is a person of color and speaking from like a more um, a marginalized creator perspective Be wary of where you're stealing your stories from and be wary of the inherent power balances that come from those creators So if you're looking at something that started out with like Tolkien world building and like colonialism There are going to be colonialist overtones And if you steal that you have to be conscious of that and whether or not and if that reflects the type of world you want to create that's something I've always been conscious of of like what like the racial structures do and what um like what the power structures do and maybe that's just because of my perspective as a marginalized creator but that's something that i would caution for when you are stealing be able to steal consciously and be able to understand what makes something work and what doesn't like tolkien has like what what is you calling the term racial enclaves mm-hmm. where it's everyone all the dwarves live here all the elves <laughs> live here Well, and like tolkien has like there is a long-standing history for that but people who borrowed from tolkien they don't get that history, so they just put everyone in their little boxes and they don't, there's no explanation as to why they've never mixed it, even though they are in very urban cities where realistically there would be some mingling and some cosmopolitan structure. And so that's just something I like to look at, like I look at things that I love and then I steal most of it and then go, but I don't want it to be racist, so then I mix it. Um.
2: I think, so uh, being able to like mix things uh, in an interesting way. So like you steal one thing here and one thing here and mix it together is really fun. Um, The public domain is your friend uh, is something I've learned. I have um, one of my favorite worlds that I've built was basically like, okay, the island you're starting off is basically Greece, but it has a Harry Potter magic school and then the major big continent next to it all of the different locations are based off of fairy tales so like i i like stole all of these things but i mixed them together in an interesting way and i found all of that stuff and that came over time like i didn't decide that in the beginning i was just like uh, I want to write a magic school story. Everyone wants to be in a magic school. My characters, my players told me that. And then I was like, okay, I don't know. I don't want to just recycle Harry Potter stuff. So I'm just like, what am I really into right now? Like, y- use your passions. It makes it less arduous. We were just talking about this earlier. If you like find the things that you're interested in, find the things that your players are interested in, it makes it a lot more exciting. And it feels like you're not putting it in as much work. No one's
3: going to like my world about pivoting spreadsheets. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm like I even know that.
2: <laughs> I've had some very, very exciting conversations about spreadsheets. <laughs> I have. You know, I can't.
3: I can't so imagine the campaign world. You'd be surprised. Out. That's
1: a very good <laughs> conversation starter.
4: <laughs> so, if you really want some buck wild games, uh, let everything the players say come true. <laughs> uh, we were playing through our campaign and one of my players very seriously looks at an NPC and says, Is there a taco place nearby? Well, yes. Uh, and, and of course once we get there, I just wasn't planning to throw this taco place in, as if I have notes in the first place, but it wouldn't have been in there. Uh So they get to this taco place and one of my favorite things to do as a, a dungeon master is be able to ask kind of prompts to inform the scene. Uh, i like to inform players of this ahead of time so that they're never caught off guard and make sure that they're okay with questions like this because it can put people on the spot a bit. And it depends, uh, performance-based games especially, that can be a little bit nerve-wracking. Uh, but for home games, you know, like ask people to throw some ideas around. Say, okay, well, what do the tablecloths in this taco place look like? What do the windows look like? Where's the menu? Is it on the wall? Is it at the table? Things like that because they start to build that world And all of a sudden as those answers are filled in that taco place comes to life, and I never wrote a word of it
1: <laughs> That is my favorite thing I have stolen from you by the way I love Thomas? that technique. No, no, the, the world building technique of just asking your players, although I do appreciate a taco
3: <laughs> Joey out, out in the hall Sorry, out in the hallway we were talking about a concept called knives. Do you, yeah. want, to, do you want to talk about knives? Yeah, let's talk about knives. Uh, oh, we uh, knives. Do we
1: want context for that? Or do we just yeah, have we, need we need a little context. Go, oh, Give like a little about about context about knives. about knives?
0: <laughs> <laughs> what about knives? Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll let you guys explain what it is, but it, it comes from this idea of taking ideas from your players. And you are one brain as the dungeon master, and your players have, you know, three to four to five to six other brains, depending on the number of people. Um, and so, you know, don't do all the work. You've got plenty of other people willing to work for you.
3: And they, yeah, those other brains come up with some scary stuff.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. One of my favorite things that I like to say as a dungeon master is, um, I'm a D- DM that doesn't like to say no, but I will make you regret that I said yes. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, I, I was actually, this was a game that I, I finally got to play in a game recently. Uh, and it, the, there was a game I was playing in, and we had ourselves session zero and it wasn't like I'm used to session zeros where I'm being handed out packets about a world and uh, I remember the time I was broken hearted when people didn't like my packet it's the hardest thing a DM has to learn is that like nobody cares about your no bullshit world um, but it was really nice because basically what they were like, asking was like what characters have you brought to me we did all our character creation before the session zero and we like just kind of like decided things about the world based on the characters we created so this one character was like I lived in a tower for years and there's other towers like this and oh I was raised by a fairy AI cult so now we know there's a Fairy AI cult in this world and a bunch of ruined towers. Okay. My character grew up in a small village and we ended up starting in that small village. Um another character was an academic who worked at a university. So there's a university in another kingdom now. And so like you come up with your backstory, all of those things can be true in the world, and the DM doesn't have to really do the work except make it work together.
3: Can I can I give an example of a knife? A knife. Oh, yes. A knife that was So I'm going to talk about knives, and this is a really bad knife. So I had I had again. No one wants to hear about other people's D and D games either, along with their worlds. But so I'll be very brief. They were attacked by wizard wizard cast acid arrow and burned a hole through their ship. And they went back to port. And they everyone's like, what happened to your ship? And they're like we were attacked by an acid kraken. And I'm like. Acid Kraken, right? And, you know, and right, and, and they're all like, oh man, like he wrote it down. He wrote down acid Kraken, right? And then, like, I just, I'm just gonna let that go for a while, right? And then they're getting attacked, and a Kraken tentacle comes and opens up and starts spewing acid at them. I'm like, we got attacked by an acid Kraken. So that's a knife, right? When, 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 the, when the players hand things to you. And you just smile and grin and write it down. That's that's a knife. Yeah.
0: And and I often hear about knives in the context of player backstories. Knives are giving you the start of the yeah. They they can happen at any time. Um, some players, uh, I have some get to the point where they uh, they don't like writing backstories because they know it will be wielded against them. Right? All my family members are dead. You know, I have no friends. I came from nowhere. Can't hurt me with my character, doesn't Um But if you are the I encourage you, uh, uh, consider giving some knives to your Dungeon Master, because your DM isn't here to make your life hell, permanently. Your DM is here to make your life hell a little bit so that the game is more fun, all right? These knives can be uh, uh, good things for you, because you know, uh, it makes your DM worry less about coming up with stuff. And suddenly, the campaign is tailored to your character a little that you've actively benefited from a story that is now uh, more directly interesting to you. Um, what are some other examples of knives? So.
1: Mm-hmm. You're gonna call me out, aren't you? Right? I am. Oh, I, I got your permission
4: first. Don't yeah. act like I did it. No, you
1: totally. You totally get
4: <laughs> So, on Monday nights, I have the great joy of playing with Mac in a campaign called Tact and
1: Diplomacy. It's not DD, it's Shadows of Estrin. It
4: is Shadows of Estrin. However, uh, we sit down for session zero, and Matt comes in she goes, oh, I've created a tragic child. <laughs> <laughs> and we go, oh joy. <laughs> because we know that that is going to make the game so interesting. It, it gives not only the other players a foundation to build upon in the interactions with that character, but also the dungeon master for the story and for the world building. And Mac hands out knives as much as she hands out smiles. And no because every time she messages the dm another knife another thing she goes And smiles. (laughs) And we all know this by now. So as the campaign has gone on, it did start with that backstory, that, that character backstory. But then every episode, sometimes new things occur to the players about their character or about something that they've experienced before. And so that adds on and on and on. And soon you have like a full... Set of cutlery. <laughs>
1: um, oh, yeah, no, there's steak knives, there's butcher knives, there's machetes, there's butter knives, tiny little
4: stilettos.
3: It's not
1: cutlery, it's an armory.
3: Painful needles. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've, I've been told to stop. I've given too many knives. The DM's like, you need to chill. And I'm like, oh, like, I like it.
4: <laughs> no, 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 it's gotten to the point where she sends knives in text messages, just like emojis. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Do smiles and so this concept of smiles and knives does that come from somewhere? Is that a
4: oh no no oh, is that a thing in a system somewhere something or is that to, just that people give out regularly? Right. That's not creepy. And,
3: well, and, <laughs> um, <coughs> knives are. I just
2: creepy. I didn't want to say like candy or something. Don't take candy from <laughs> strangers, yeah. y'all. Um, so there is actually a a positive version of knives, and um, we use them in uh, one of my games, and it's called Moments. And so this is another tool you can use to try and like kind of guide your uh, game and guide your world building in a way that the, the characters want. And so if your characters come with these like awesome characters that they want and they want their backstories to be used and they want to be a little tortured, right? But some of them just really want moments to happen in the game. And those moments could be knives or those moments could be like, I want to become king. I want to kiss the queen awake. I want to um, uh, make a hard decision. I want to adopt a child. I want to uh, fight in a war, things like that. And then you write all this stuff down and like, okay, so there's a war up north, there's a queen, there's um, uh, maybe like some like all of these things and you can work towards making these moments happen and trying to at least create the opportunities so these moments can exist. Maybe not guaranteeing them, but um, that's what makes the journey fun.
4: To add on that, that's a great thing to talk about in in session zero, what a player's expectations and goals are for their characters, and just kind of get that idea um, and, and, you know, uh, set those expectations, make sure everyone's on the same page, but then all of a sudden you you're feeling more prepared when you go into session one. So this, yeah.
3: is, this is probably pretty common. Does everybody know what a session zero is? Is there any, uh, I know, see a lot of nods. Yeah, great stand, great there's great. one right there. She first first doesn't know first about first session second. zero.
0: Yeah. If, if What's a session
3: one one zero? If about session zero, this panel will be worth Valuable, with. and uh, how it relates yeah. to world building, yeah. Um,
0: feel free to add in if I miss something, but session zero in very, very short is a session you have before the campaign itself actually begins. It's uh, sometimes character creation happens in session zero, Sometimes we talk about moments of knives in Session Zero. Uh, oftentimes we'll put down sort of hard limits in Session Zero. I, like, I don't want this campaign to feature, you know, parental death, for instance. And if I tell my GM that and my Dungeon Master is a good person, they'll say, okay, we'll shy away from that because it won't be fun for you and by essentially for the group if that's a big theme in our campaign. Does that encapsulate in- yeah. like yeah. your answer Yeah, add
4: on I I do try to discuss goals, expectations, and hopes for the game just Mm -hmm. because someone may come in and say, oh, I just really wanna combat, I really wanna fight things which is great, but if if no one else's expectation is the same, then you're going to have a lot of clashing uh, and and a lot of people who walk away feeling that like they didn't enjoy it. So if you understand what they're hoping, not only for their character, but from the game overall, you can cater it accordingly to uh, to each individual at the table and hopefully make it an enjoyable game for everyone.
0: And, and moreover, Session Zero is a good place to introduce new stuff, too. Like, if you want to introduce anything you've learned at this panel, it won't just happen naturally. You need to be able to tell your players that it's a good thing that you want to introduce. And then, you know, you can explain it to them and they can give you feedback and suddenly you can tailor all these concepts specifically to your group rather than just, just scattershot hoping that it'll work.
3: One, one th- sorry. Um, the
2: I am a lazy dungeon master and I understand that some of the hardest part about playing D&D as an, as an adult is not all the rules. It's finding people to play with in a time that works for everyone. So, um, uh, as this is the Lazy Dungeon Master panel, I wanna say, cause session zero does create, like, you know, it's a time before that you, before you start playing the game. So what I like to do is I actually like, kind of have a 20 minute session zero and just kind of get out guidelines and do kind of like a half session in the same session. Um, because that way we can start playing right away and we can kind of get the feel of things. So, um, uh, I definitely recommend doing that if you have the opportunity to do it and you don't know when you're going to play again. Um, uh, if you have players who are interested in doing a full, like, hour, two hour session zero, by all means, and you want to put in that prep work, but there are alternatives to still using these concepts and without, like, t- ha- taking a whole section where you're not actually playing the game to do it.
3: I think I think yes, I' agree with that completely. I love having like a mini session at the end mm-hmm. you know of your of your your prep. And one, so one of the other things that I have found really useful, and I think it helps you know, constrain the world building to things that are going to matter to um, to your players is to write like a one page campaign summary. Of what, you know, on the assumption that you've already got some initial agreement about, hey, we're all gonna play Ghost of Saltmarsh, right? You can have a one page guide that is written in the second person. And when you write it in the second person, you're referring continually to you being the characters that they are, you're constraining all of the stuff that they're not concerned with out. And you have this one page, which they will actually be able to read, because it's only one page. So it also, you know, you don't give them the 45 page, like, you know, memorize the Pantheon before the next session. But instead you can say, like, here are the four things that really matter when you're hanging out in Saltmarsh.
1: And I think also, like what I use for session zero is, once you understand what your player's expectations are, you know what you need to prep, to very air quotes the term. Because I have like, uh, when one of my campaigns, my players are very, um, they're very, he is very linear. It's the campaign I run for one-on-one. He's a very linear, I want a goal, I want to do this, and I want steps to do it, and I need. Uh, I want to know that progress. So I know, okay, I just need to prep this. But like for other campaigns, I knew, they're chaotic gremlins. They're gonna do whatever they want. I'm just gonna ask them. Where do you want to go? You got your, you got your car. Where, where, where do you drive? Go. Show me. Tell me. Take me along. And so, knowing like what your players want and what will help them have fun <laughs> helps you know. Okay, I need to prep this much, and I don't have to worry about anything else. I don't
0: have to worry about me. Yeah. and this is one of the the big benefits of uh, stealing from published campaign material or, or even taking ideas from other popular sources is that suddenly it's information that your players don't have to memorize. It's information that you don't have to put on your one sheet. You can say, this campaign is set in the Forgotten Realms, or whatever. Uh, your players will be like, oh, okay, I know where the I know vaguely where the geography is that they've played in Forgotten Realms before, and I know vaguely what the, uh, the Pantheon is like. Or, you know, they have an easy reference that they want to know that stuff. Um, I want to ask you guys one last question before we go to Q&A, um, and I want to ask... What are some of your favorite things to steal from for your game? Oh, I got go. I
3: always have a good one. Like, don't start with me.
2: <laughs> I mean, you know my answer.
3: Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: The Wizard of Oz. Like, it's it's honestly, like, if you've actually... There's, there's 40 books, first of all. Most people don't know that. Um, Actually, you guys all probably know that because you're nerds. Um, um, there's forty. There's forty books, and so in the first fourteen were written by L. Frank Baum, and they are fantastical, ridiculous, have lots of weird names, steal from it. It's lots of like, like honestly, I think a lot of fantasy fiction comes m- more from that, especially the more shenanigansy uh, uh Terry Pratchett style, uh, than it does from Tolkien.
1: I steal from what is exactly outside my front door, because I am really lazy, and I also never leave my apartment, so I just look out the window and go, okay. So uh, the last the last campaign I ran over on Scratch Academy, um, it had a very different setting. It was set in a more of a, it's still DD, but it was like a retro 80s style, and I took a lot of inspiration from what was exactly outside my front door, which is my college town. It's very, sort of has this very retro, old-timey like brick-faced neon aesthetic, and it's just sort of like these long streets with like very, very cookie cutter houses and this sort of flat landscape. And I just love that idea of like taking this thing that looks so mundane and adding something to it, adding something that'll just make it spark. Cause I have to see this every day. There has to be something else here. I'm bored. Let me make the thing, or make, make my own world interesting and give me something to look out the window and be like, yes, I can make that mundane diner. Maybe there, Thor lives there now, there and sort of just like I just borrow from what I see outside and like I lived where the wildfires were a couple years back and like when the sky's completely covered over with smoke and I was just like oh this looks apocalyptic i could probably write about that <laughs> if i don't die <laughs>
3: right, so I'll, I'll go with mine not nearly as dramatic um dyson logos so if you know Dyson, the cartographer, right? He is now, I think, in like four different Watsi books. He is the, the cartographer for those books, something like that. Four, four or five, yes, yeah. four or five. And he has 700 maps available on his website for free, and many of those are free for commercial use. So if you want to write something for the DMs Guild or another location, you can use his maps, and uh, you can use his maps uh, royalty free. And it's just amazing. He he does that through all of his Patreon backers. He has a significant number of people who fund him on Patreon, so he is getting funded by them to make maps for us. And there are eight hundred of them. So if you ever need a map for anything, don't sit down and write one. Like people love writing maps. Not only people write maps, but it's not lazy. Lazy is going to Dyson and scrolling and then finding a map that looks like the temple you wanted and it's close enough, right? And they're brilliant and they print really well. So that's my that's my favorite trick. Oh yeah.
4: I don't know. So I, I think, I've been sitting here thinking this entire time because I honestly, I, I don't know. I mean, I watch so many things, I, I play so many video games, um, and definitely those can be very inspiring. You can, you can choose elements from those. Uh, I will say that, that some of the first one-shots that I ever wrote and ran at my local game store were inspired by uh, The Sherlock the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and so definitely, like, a book series that you're really passionate about, uh, even something that is not D&D-related, uh, can be super inspirational for you, even if you just choose that single element from, uh, from the, the book or the world that you really enjoy and then expand upon it from there. Uh, uh, I feel like... <laughs> Oh, this is such a hard question. I didn't prepare.
3: Um, I had so so lazy. I know. Uh,
4: thank you. I would say, uh, JRPGs. Honestly, uh, there are so many that uh, I played growing up that inspired me. Um, there are so many that I play now that inspired me, and I will say that uh, Tales of Berseria is one of the like greatest inspirations that I cite for my current campaign. Uh, it just has a lot of really fascinating world elements and great depth of character that then informs the world around them. And I'm very passionate about seeing that in my stories as well. And so again, just taking something from that that makes me feel and then finding out what about it makes me feel and then therefore porting that element into my game so that the rest of the world can start to fall into place. Maybe pull something from Tales of Hysteria. Maybe pull something from Mean Girls the musical. I also do a lot of musicals. Also, Shakespeare. Mm. Mm-hmm. Also, a lot of things. I'm sorry. Uh, that's it. I don't have a favorite, clearly.
0: Yeah, I still do Tales of Symphonia for every campaign I ever run. Yeah. Yeah okay, Oh my god. <laughs> um, all right, uh, we're gonna have an enforcer coming around with a microphone. If you have a question that you want to ask us, hands up. The oh. very first hand is over there, I think. You should be the Yeah, yeah, right over there. Uh, far side, all the, way. all
1: the way. All the way. White shirt. Get it.
3: So um, my question was, uh, if you're so the, the what's the laziest way you can build cities that would flesh out in kind of larger towns? Because <laughs> you're, you're kind of talking about one small town, so I actually go
2: to a city. Um, so one of my favorite things that like people actually do like all the time in the entertainment industry is take maps of real life cities and then just kind of like turn them.
3: Um, Take something and turn it 90 degrees.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, like, a lot of them are just like maps of other cities, and like, this district is now this. I did that. I'm from San Francisco. I took San Francisco and I made that my super weird sci fi alien city for another game I was running.
0: You laugh at that, but Chris Perkins during the 5e playfest, made his campaign setting map, a map of the United Kingdom, flipped north to south, and it took me five hours to notice.
1: (laughs) The thing is, also, if you're not a map person, because I hate maps, I run an an urban heist campaign in a 20-story canal city the size of Las Vegas, and I have not once drawn a map. (laughs) Because what I did was I just made a table, and I was like, level one through two is this. Level three through five, you'll find residents. This is like the mall district. Levels five through 15, resident housing, all tenement housing. When you go up to level 16, okay, now you're starting to get to the posture areas. You're gonna find like the nice taverns and like the hotels and the, the lavish theaters and you get higher and higher. And I just have, I literally gave my player just a table like a, twi- like a 10 line table. Like here's what you can find on each level of the city. I'm not drawing a map of 20 stories of Las Vegas. It's just not happening. I don't have time. So that, that's another way to do it. It's just like, know, like in this vague direction, you can find this. And that's enough for your players to be like, "If I need something, I can go there." And then once you get there, then you can sort of fill in the gaps as you go.
4: Also ask the Internet. but Google. Google's great. Uh, if you say, "Hey, what should I do in Philadelphia?" it'll give you helpful lists. Like, there's a market across the street. What? Oh, there's totally it's a market in the city. Oh, yeah, and yeah. if you go a little bit to the north, there's like the square where all the museums are around, and, and there's so much like historical architecture. And all of a sudden, like you're you're reading through this like ten th- top ten things to do in Philadelphia, and you're like, "Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I have a market. I have museums." Or you know, like ask Twitter, ask Reddit, you know, ask around. Uh, People can help supply ideas, uh, places, cool places that they would enjoy visiting in a city, uh, and that starts to like flush out from there.
1: Thanks. I think someone in the middle had a hand up. Uh, uh, I think we should just go. go. Yeah, that'll that'll be easier. Okay.
0: I'm a lazy DM. I haven't
1: been taking notes. (laughs) (laughs) Valid.
0: Yes. Is that book that you mentioned, The
3: the Lazy DM, is that available for us? Yeah, I'm so glad book? you <laughs> asked. I'll, I'll pay afterwards. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so there is a book called Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. You can Google it and you'll find it. Um, I should have the URL, but it's easier to just Google it. Um, yeah, too lazy, too lazy to even sell my own Go book.
0: To
3: Go to SlyFlourish.com and you'll see it right there. Uh, it is also happens to be available for sale here at Inkwell Ideas booth at 3854. Thank you. <laughs> we
0: do want to do right that one. <laughs> All right, middle section. Hands.
4: Yeah. Right
0: over there. Yeah. Recap. Cap. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. So um, going off of the nice
1: concept, like, what the character gives you, how do you like figure out, I guess, the boundaries of what you can do with that information? Like, you don't want to take that stuff like away
2: from the character and make it something that's I mean, yours. Like, how do you determine what you can do? Um, I think putting things in danger with always the opportunity that they can get those things back is a, a really useful tool. Um, in uh, a game I was in, um, a character had her dog on an adventure and her dog got killed and then her next character arc was like saving up enough money so she could resurrect that dog so like in D, because it's a fantasy it because it's a fantasy world like even if you take things away there's always the potential to get those things back um and um and making sure that anything that you do do doesn't um uh, do mm, doo anything that you. We're all in here. I'm five, apparently. Uh, anything, anything that you do that
1: uh, um, doesn't cross the characters like hard lines that you establish in uh, a prep session. That's the big one. Is just make sure you talk. Don't talk. Talk with the players themselves about where their lines are. Like we always, um, our, my games. I always have a lines and veils sheet where it's like lines are things we will never touch ever. Hard line. So and if like if your players like don't want any of their characters in their backstory to die, then you just okay, I don't they don't have to die. You can maybe endanger them in other ways, maybe like their town is like under a curse. Or, you know, or something like that. But like, just the easiest way to make sure you don't cross any boundaries is just to talk about those boundaries with the people you're playing with. And just make sure you create an environment where you are comfortable enough with each other to share those boundaries and make sure everyone is comfortable and having fun. Because fun should never supersede your world building. Fun should always be your, fun and players fun should always be your number one priority. And I'm a huge proponent of communication in all things,
4: uh, b- between friends, between significant others, between gamers. So if you sit down and you have knives, feel free to communicate with that player well beyond the lines and bill sheet. Like you can continue to have conversations with them, kind of feel out where they're at, what they're feeling regularly. If you check in after a session where you feel like, okay, I'm starting to, like, draw on these knives now. Are you feeling me stab you yet? Like, uh, talk about that. Hey, does it hurt? Um, do I need to stop? Or do you want me to Do you
1: oh, want more yeah.
4: stabs? <laughs> uh, I'm a masochist oh, no. in games, so I know, I know exactly my type, and I'm just like, yes, stab me more,
1: please. Yeah, it can, it can yeah. be really... Oh, go ahead. Sorry,
3: it can be really tricky, right? That's not... It's, it, especially, like, there are circumstances where, you know, like hey, you know that character that you really like? I'm thinking of killing him off in the next session how do you feel about that? Right? So sometimes it can be tricky where you're like, it makes sense that the person would be killed from a story perspective, but am I, they have a concept called fridging, right? And, and fridging is where you take like, the character everyone loves and they end up in a refrigerator <laughs> cut up into pieces, right? He's the only one that hadn't heard about fridging before. So, you know, and, and so you're like, am I doing that? You have to be careful, like, am I fridging? And you don't want, just like you don't want the player who's like, hey, well, that's what my character would do. Right? You don't want to be the opposite, which is like, I know I killed your favorite character, but hey, he was surrounded by assassins. Like,
2: it Not my important. fault. Right? It's important for the story. Well, does it, or does, yeah, it,
3: or does it, or it's hard. it
4: add value to
3: your narrative? Yeah, but sometimes it can add value to the narrative and still really piss off a player. Well, and it could be... The answer is it's hard. right? Yeah. And when you get to that case, you're like, where is that balance between wanting to move the story in that interesting direction? I mean, I literally have a character that is loved by multiple members of the group who his, and these the spoilers for Cosa of Saltmarsh, uh, his butler is an assassin. Right? And the butler's starting to figure out that he's getting hunted. And his first target's going to be that guy. And I'm like, but he's friends with everybody. So I'm trying to figure out, like, how does that guy, and the k- kid's an idiot, right? <laughs> he's going to get killed, like, really quickly. So it's, it's a hard thing to figure out. And, you know, yeah, it, sometimes there's not a great answer. You, you, you either go with, like, I'm going to Find! I'm gonna! I'm gonna deus ex machina my way out of this problem, and the kid gets lucky because luck, luck is a good way. So luck can happen in any direction, and if it can help you slide into the, I'm gonna be nicer to my players because the kid got good luck and managed to get away from the assassin before getting killed. My- and we can take that.
2: I think that, you know, at the end of the day, we are, like, even as Dungeon Masters, like, we jokingly call ourselves gods of the world we create, but, like, we're human. We're going to make mistakes. We might end up accidentally offending our players when we do things like that. So I think, like, when you realize you've done something like that, that's actually the proper time to, like, empower your character and be like, okay, well, this has already happened, but here are the steps you can take to get this back and, and, like, put that into place.
1: My favorite saying to add on to the addendum of Knives is, like, you give, we give, like, when I talk to my DM, I'm like, I give you knives because I trust that you know how to use them. That stuff, like, that's the point. It's like, I, I, I wouldn't give someone I don't trust a knife. So you have to build up that trust with your players. So they're like, I trust you that you'll hurt me in a safe way.
3: <laughs> you'll hurt me for the benefit of the story, yeah. right? Yeah. For the fun of the game.
1: You'll hurt me in a, in a way that I know I will enjoy it, even though I might be angry at you in the moment. I might cry. Oh, definitely. I will absolutely cry. You're right. <laughs> and, uh,
3: that, that guy's uh, had his hand up yeah, a whole yeah. lot. Okay. <laughs> um, it's coming Mike, Mike's come right here. reach uh, out. My question is, how much world building would you do to optimize your session zero? Like, How much prep do you need for your players in our context before you have
4: <laughs> I mean, I mean, if you don't want to, you don't have to have done anything. Uh, you can actually sit down and <coughs> learn more about what you want to do for world building from session zero if you want, uh, and start using that to inform what you're going to do for session one. Uh, now, I think that completely varies. Some people may have bullet points or some people may have a, a, a general idea or starting small, like you may have the village or the quest line kind of planned out. Uh, but. Frankly if you're comfortable with it, you could have nothing walk in learn from the players What they want to see in a game or what they've come up with for their characters so far and start from there like,
1: like, like, uh, Sometimes it's just like a genre like I know I want to do retro Suburb like retro suburban fantasy That's what I want fill in the gaps and then from session zero I'll build out what they want uh, or like uh, pirates that's it that's all I got for session zero and then you just sort of build out from there because um, if you come into session zero with like this is what I want but then you get into the issue of you give your, your your players that packet and then they don't read it and they they, don't, they just don't give a darn mm-hmm. and so like one or two words is probably all you need
3: <laughs> I think yeah I think the the one page handout is probably the most I would do so I think I think going into a session zero and, and gathering a lot of information from the players and coming you obviously want to structure it somewhat and have some idea about what you wanna to, wanna to do. Um, but if you kind of have a pretty decent idea of, of where you're going. So I, I think one of my next campaigns is going to be an Eberron campaign. And the, the book just came out. And my instruction, in this case, I don't really have to do a one-sheet because there's a book. But I'm not going to expect that they've read 300 pages of Eberron before they show up at session one. So, but luckily, the book is pretty well designed. And you can start, just start reading and get as far as you can you know if you only get five pages you'll have five pages if you get 50 you're gonna have 50 and from a player perspective they'll be better off knowing what's going to go on but i don't think i'm gonna you know i think for that one i'm probably gonna have even less than normal so reading you know if you're running a world that is already built which i recommend because it's you know capitalizing all all that value um then reading it is probably a big a big deal Uh, otherwise i think sticking to that sheet And saying what matter, you know, constantly think about second person. What 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 matters to the characters? What gods matter to them? What societies matter to them? And then, yeah, in a lot of cases, you're going to get that from them more than you're going to give it to them.
0: Mm. Uh, For me, I am not as lazy as some of these folks. Uh, My my session zero tends to begin um, before anyone has sat down at the table. Usually, when I'm inviting people into a campaign, I'll say, "Here are some ideas of what I want to play with you. Like maybe." Uh, Magic School, Everon or a uh, fairy tale game. You know. And from there, I'll see what people want to do. Once they've given me an idea of what, what they want to do, I'll be like, okay, cool, I'll see you next week. And I go in, uh, and make a four-slide PowerPoint that talks about the things I think are most important for them. <laughs> it talk, says
3: a lot about me. It's
0: a PowerPoint um, presentation. But ultimately, <laughs> PowerPoint is kind of the same as your one sheet the information okay. is just in bigger text have you considered have you
3: considered putting it into a spreadsheet though
0: right <laughs> <laughs> um, i'm a firm believer that people better they have images uh, and uh, that's a great reason to have a campaign source book it looks great it's just the truth um, okay, it's time for one or two more questions yeah let's get
1: one or two more. let's go on this side because we haven't got any yeah, here. right there
3: So, when you're playing, uh, like especially Dungeons and Dragons, when I DM, I've noticed that the players who are more outgoing or maybe just more comfortable doing role playing games tend to kind of take a lead, uh, especially in a party where there's some newer people or some people who aren't as outgoing. What's the best way to kind of draw your more reserved players into the game on the fly without punishing the people who are really into it and are really offering a lot to the game? Yeah, that's awesome. uh, I
0: some thoughts on this, you want to play an extra one? I think the, the most important thing for me when it comes to that is, is don't do it on the fly. Uh, if there's a session where someone is being more outgoing, it's because they feel more comfortable being outgoing. Um, and if there's someone who isn't, then it's worth taking the time out of being to uh, talk to them and figure out why they don't want to be more outgoing. It might be that they're just not a very you know, social person in that case, unless they feel neglected, there's no problem. They're just not going to talk as much if it's because they don't like the material or because something at the table is making them feel uncomfortable, that's a great time to maybe revisit your session zero and see sort of what what things you've established and if those need to change in some sort of way.
2: Um, I have a a bit of a problem uh, myself of being the more outgoing one. So one of the things that I uh, learned uh, back when I was in camp um, was this great thing called uh, step up, step back. And um I kind of use that like when I'm talking about lines fails, I also talk about expectations at the table because you know, like we all have our ticks, our, our things that we do that is gonna rub people the wrong way. And just kind of having the expectations that this isn't like you know, like we are all coming here to have fun and we succeed when we all have fun. We win at D and D by having fun and just like setting up expectations and like really understanding like okay if that's the kind of role play you want to play if you don't want to be as social but if you want to be more social please respect the time of other people like especially when you have a lot of people like i have a lot of games because i'm in a theater background where everyone is that o- overly outgoing <laughs> person and so we're all talking out over each other so more often than not i think you'll see that happening uh, when you're playing D and so being able to um kind of manage that kind of environment and being like okay everybody's saying what they want to do at the same time i'm going to go in order boom 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 and only like everyone talks once at a time that kind of thing
4: i have run a lot of games for kids uh, and part of that comes from being a a dm for a family-friendly podcast Uh, but uh, I've, i've kind of had that experience a lot with children who are either very over-eager about the game, and then the, the children who are, are not as much, maybe a little bit more shy or uncertain about what they want to be doing. And so uh, questions are an incredibly useful tool. Uh, you can see the entire table, hopefully, from where you are in your, your DM seat. Uh, try, to, try to gauge things. Uh, it doesn't require any prep. It's all in the moment. It's very much like hanging out on the balls of your feet, ready to kind of like pivot whichever direction. But be prepared to ask players questions in a way that is comfortable for them. Part of that ties into expectations, but start to engage them in a a friendly way. Say, okay, well, uh, what is your character doing while so-and-so is over here running around the market and setting all the stalls on fire? (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of times they'll be like, well, I'll get a bucket of water. (laughs) (laughs) I...
2: I can sometimes be too firm, um, but I think sometimes uh, uh, there are times when it really works and people like kind of understand, oh, I'm making it not fun for other people. So I, I was actually running a game for kids and there was uh, these these kids who were just like running amok, you know, like very murder hobo. And that's totally a valid way to play the game. But there's this other kid who's like a lot quieter and wants to just like role play and doing his thing. And I'm just like... I just like, put my foot down and was like, hey guys, you like playing D&D, right? And they're like, yeah. You wanna keep playing D&D? And they're like, yeah. And they're like, as you grow older, it's gonna be a lot harder to find people to play D&D with, and it's gonna be a lot harder to find time for people to play D&D with, and they're gonna wanna, they're gonna prioritize people that they like playing D&D with. So I recommend that you be a person who people like playing to D&D with.
0: I'm gonna
3: try
2: and get uh, a few more questions in the five minutes we have um, I see one right, right there. I can talk so fast, I answer fast.
3: Hi. First off, I'd like to say pivot tables are awesome. Yeah.
1: Pivot tables. Yes. Woo. Ties back to the reserve players. How do you feel about? I have certain players, and I really appreciate player agency in my game. Yes. And I have plenty of players that will give me backstory to use, and I love doing that. But how do you feel about approaching a character that maybe the player doesn't know about how to give you the backstory, or you kind of feel like you want to engage their character, but they haven't given you any material? How do you balance giving them agency, but also saying, okay, maybe I want to say that they have this former lover or this deranged uncle or something like that? Like, how do you approach kind of like
2: the agency of what their character's history is and trying to give them content when, you know, maybe they are more hesitant to? It?
4: I'm all about communication and I love communication so much and I I definitely prioritize communication. Also, questions are an incredible tool and the internet is very helpful it has a lot of answers. So, there are actually like four writers, there are some really good like character interviews that help you uh, create a character for your novel uh, and it's great, it's all about the author sitting down and then responding to the question (laughs) as the character. And as a DM, you can use those absolutely to have a conversation with your players, especially if they don't know what their backstory is, they may not, or that may be very overwhelming to them. Think about that, but if you can come to them with a couple of questions and continually communicate with them. So, hey, what are your, what are your parents like? You know, like what what jobs do they work? How do you how do you feel about them? Then they can start kind of going, oh well, yeah, actually, actually my well my moms you know really got along for a long time, but one of them has been out working so much lately, and things have just been a little tense around the house lately. And I'm setting out for this adventure. I don't know what's going to happen. So you know you know start to see that uh, that. The, the thoughts start, and so uh, definitely, I would say uh, yeah, writer character interviews. I probably would come up with something on Google, and maybe can help you kind of kickstart those ideas with a, a more reserved uh, player.
1: Mike
0: desperately going to try one You three minutes. Right there, middle outside. So, speaking of having your players come in and like add things to the backstory, I have one player in my. Campus.
2: Now we came in with this, like, really intense backstory with, like, five very detailed family members to the point where it's like, please stop making me be your dad, this is weird. Man, that's, a, <laughs> that's a
3: lot of knives.
2: How you kind of balance that, because my other players are much more reserved, they give me a lot of room, but she's like, has very concrete expectations of what she wants and what these characters are already like. I, I, uh, Joey, I feel like you, you I have experience. A I don't nice. want to talk
0: anymore. Oh, you think so? <laughs>
2: I mean, I feel like, like we have some of that going on in our
0: game. Uh, I guess I, I feel like the, the, the way to share the spotlight us is just to, to talk to the character and ask, what is the number one most important thing for you? What is the thing that, if if you only had this, you would be happy with the game? Um, I feel like it's the shortest I can say that. <laughs> Does anyone else have anything that they think? It's so what, right? was
3: the question you have a you have a character that has a, like a ton of backstory? What do you what do you pull on? Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, right. So you don't you don't have an obligation. Just like they don't have an obligation to love your game world. You don't have an obligation to love every aspect of their character. So <laughs> you you can kind of pick the thing that you think works. And they'll pro- I mean, in my experience with the ones that I've had a lot, they'll be happy if you pick anything. Right. Like if you pick one aspect of the character that fits in with whatever you're thinking, and you can tug on that line, that will usually be enough. And even the four other you know major backstories will will take a backseat in their mind. That that's been my experience.
2: Just because they give you NPCs doesn't mean you have to play right. them. They can exist in the background off-screen. And
3: now you're to I think that's a really good place to end this panel. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you
1: so much for coming,
0: everyone. <laughs> 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 Make sure that they can answer it online. Thanks Thank much you. for coming. Have a great pass. Oh yeah, Twitter. <laughs>